Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. Okay, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Yes? The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in the fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychora, near the the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave you the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you, are, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our father worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipper must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, who speak to you, am he. Here in this lesson, reading. Thanks, Wilson. Um, Sometimes you get a a picture, don't you, that defines an event or a movement. 
Um, and there are many examples in history, aren't there, where something, one thing happens and it seems in a snapshot to capture every feeling, every, uh, every nuance, every fact, everything that's happened before and is going to happen afterwards kind of can sometimes be caught up in one picture. <clears throat> I'll do it slow this week, so there's no slides because I'll show you the picture I'm about to show you, but next week I promise I will. Um, but right back in the 5th of June in 1989, uh, it was a very famous bit of video of a, a guy called Tank Man. Um, which is a, an interesting description of him. He's called Tank Man simply because on the 5th of June, one solitary man stood in front of a line of Chinese tanks on the way out of Tiananmen Square after the brutal crushing of the protest the day before by the Chinese government. One man stood with his back carrier bag of shopping, refusing to get out of the way of those tanks as they tried to roll away from that place. That one image captured the oppressive regime of the Chinese government, and it also captured something of the defiance of that particular time in history. And just sometimes you read a story in the Bible that seems to do the same thing, seems to swallow up so many different themes. In one interaction, we seem to learn so much, so much so that I'm actually thinking I might come back to this story next week and focus on the bit towards the end that I've not really mentioned Our reading uh, that, thankfully, Winsome did from John 4 in the end (laughs) um, captures so much. And you may have already realized just how much we get to learn from this story of Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. We discover about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is a man. He's tired. He needs something to drink. He's like us in his humanity. But we also understand his divinity. He has this supernatural knowledge of this woman's life what she's done, who she is. And you see both the fullness of God and the fullness of his humanity. Jesus Christ is not just some bloke that lived 2,000 years ago. He is fully man and fully God in the one person. He is God as a man, and he has human characteristics and divine all in the same person. We see that sort of hinted strongly in this story. And in the story, we see something of the ways of God's kingdom and the scope and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we talk of the gospel, what do we mean? We talk of the message of salvation. Most people don't realize they need saving. They think they need surviving. I just survive through my life. I put up with my scars and my baggage, and I'll get to the end. Hopefully, I'll be relatively happy when I die. But God promises salvation, salvation from our sin, the things that we've deliberately done that we shouldn't against God and against each other. Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is is death. Death is only our reality because of our brokenness from God. And Christ, the perfect man, the Son of God, pays the price for our sin on the cross. He dies a death for every single human being. And then on the third day, he rises from the grave, rose from the grave, so that everyone who puts their trust in him not just can have their sin wiped away, but their fear of death destroyed as well. They die as well, but they too will rise from the grave to everlasting life. This is the gospel message, the forgiveness of sin, the restoration of our very soul, and a hope of heaven. And we see the kingdom of God and the power of that gospel message in this story as well. In the Gospel of John, which we're in chapter 4 of, we've seen already quite a few incredible moments. Jesus has already done some amazing things, some of them controversial, some of them just unbelievable. The turning of water into wine in chapter 2, for example. The turning over the tables in the temple. 
Can you imagine if Jesus came into our church and saw something that was not of his kingdom and he took it and snapped it and threw it? would be outraged as they were, but he would be right to do it. We saw that. And then we saw in John chapter 3 this incredible new radical teaching to this Pharisee Nicodemus at the dark, uh, in, the, in the dead of night about the need to be born again. Even this Pharisee had no idea, what are you talking about? How can I be born again? It always makes me laugh. I occasionally have conversations about being a Christian with non-Christians. And they will often say, oh, you're one of those born-again Christians. As if there's different levels of Christ follower. The only way you can be a Christ follower is if you've been born again. You can't church your way into heaven. You can't church your way out of heaven, for that matter. But you have to give your life to Christ that he makes you born again. You're given a new nature, a new life. You are completely brand new. The old has gone, the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. So we had those incredible moments. And then perhaps we get to the most controversial of moments in John's gospel so far. Even more controversial than smashing up the tables in the temple. The purpose of John's gospel, by the way, is to show us that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah from all those thousands, hundreds of years before, prophesied hundreds of times in the Old Testament. He wants us to understand that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, so that his readers will understand a very simple message, that if they believe in him, they will have everlasting life. And if you don't believe me, you can hear John yourself in chapter 20 when he says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This interaction with this Samaritan woman that we're looking at now would have been perhaps the most controversial, but in it we see the ethics and the power of God's coming kingdom of heaven breaking into the tired prejudices of this old world of ours. I won't retell the story because uh, uh, Winsome literally just read it for us, but I wonder what your thoughts are as you heard that story read to us. What do you think of this interaction between Jesus and this woman? What do you think it shows us about Jesus? Are you a bit shocked? Uh, he's uh, questioning about her family situation and her past. Do you think it's out of order? Why are you bringing up that? That's nothing to do with you. What do you think about, what do you think this story means for us as Christians? Where does it challenge us? Where should it change us? Should it change the way we live and interact with people? What are your thoughts? We haven't got time to do a Q&A, so I'll just tell you what mine are. Um, anyway, so there's a couple of key themes before I get to my main point this morning. So one main point I want to really want to focus on. But the first is one of the things we see in this story is the universality of the gospel. The fact that the gospel, this message of Jesus, isn't just for one people group, but for all people groups. We can sometimes as Christians look out on the world and think these people live an alternative life to, to what we believe or, or, or whatever. And we look at them and think, well, I don't know how to talk to them and they're different to me. What happens with the gospel for them? Well, Christ is for them. Jesus wants to speak into their life and transform them and bring them forgiveness like he does everywhere else. At various countries in history, certain countries have said only certain ethnic groups should have access to the, the gospel and church. And that was wrong. Jesus is for all people. Rich, poor, different ethnicities and both genders. 
And so we have, this union, we have this clash between the Jews and the Samaritans. And for us, it's not really a big deal because life is much different for us, isn't it? But the Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. And by the time the first century came around, the hostility between these two near neighbors was very, very severe. It went back to 722 BC, 700 odd years before, when the northern part of Israel was taken off to a foreign power and resettled, but mixed in with them were other people groups. They lost their distinctiveness, and as they lost that distinctiveness, they brought with them pagan practices that weren't of God. And so those in the south despised them and kept their distance from them. They'd got it wrong, and they had got it wrong, and we had got it right, and they kept away, and they hated each other. So a Jew would never, ever go near a Samaritan. In fact, what's fascinating is Jesus has to leave Galilee in the south to get to the north, um, the other way around, sorry, Judea in the south and get to Galilee in the north. And he could have taken the long way around, which many Jews would have done, even leaving the country, I think, crossing a river, coming back up the top. But Jesus goes all the way through Samaria. I wonder, do we ever cross over on the other side to avoid people we're uncomfortable with as Christians? Shame on us if we do. Shame on us if we do. But they hated each other. But what's fascinating here is Jesus loves this woman. He offers her everlasting life. He gives her dignity. He speaks to her, even though he's not meant to. And what I find really wonderful about Jesus is he uses the Samaritans on numerous occasions to teach his Jewish followers just what it is to represent him on earth, which he will do, we will do soon. In Luke chapter 10, verse 37, he uses the Samaritan in the love my neighbor story. Who's the good neighbor? The Samaritan. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 56, when the same town refuses to let Jesus in, his disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven and kill them all? I don't think they could have done that. Jesus tells them off, teaching them about love and compassion. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where does the mission of the church go? From Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Jesus brings this people group back into their consciousness over and over and over. It is not good enough for them to hate. They must love all people. Christ died for everybody. The church must always understand and never get wrong. We see the universal side of the gospel, but the inclusivity of the gospel as well. In verse 27, uh, if you've got your Bible open, the, the disciples come back from getting food from the local town. It says, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? They know something's up, but not quite sure what to say to Jesus. They're shocked. And the reason they're shocked is that in the first century, a rabbi, as he was considered, it would have been beneath them, beneath their dignity to talk to a woman publicly. But here Jesus cuts all the way through that rubbish, all the way through that fluff and that nonsense, reminding his followers and every follower since that the kingdom of God is inclusive. I love Galatians chapter 3, when Paul writes this. Hang on. And he writes this, verse 27 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is no, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jesus cuts through that sort of sexist way of saying women should be kept over there and men are where it's at and don't speak to them because it's beneath you. He cuts all the way through it. 
And then we see the power of the gospel in this interaction with Jesus when she, he asks for water. And she says, well, I can't give you water, you're a Jew. And then he says, if you knew who I was, then you would ask me for living water. And then she points out he hasn't got a bucket, as if it's down there at the end of a well. But the shock of this, I love the fact that he offers her life. He offers her this wonderful sense of everlasting life. Verse 10 and 13 and 14, let me read it to you again. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then verse 13 to 14, he answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's from the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in the next verse, she gets confused. In Greek, this is a double meaning. This well of water is a double meaning. It can just mean a well of water. But in John chapter 7, verses 38 to 39, the same expression is used to talk of the Holy Spirit. Once you become a Christian, God the Holy Spirit enters you, and it's a well of, he's a well of life within you, overflowing. Life comes from within the Christian, not outside to the inside. Christ gives us life inside, and we live forever, even if our bodies fall apart. But she thinks he means actual water, but he's offering her the water of life. I wonder how often do we look for salvation in earthly things. We look for the fulfillment of God's promises and what we can see and touch. You say everlasting water, you must mean this cup. No, 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 you're wrong. Put the things you can see and control away and trust in the eternal things of God. How many of us look for what's earthly, for heaven's salvation, when we should look up, not the other way round? How often do we look at God and say, you haven't got a bucket? How can you get me everlasting water? But God has got all the resources to give you life if you just ask for it. So there's some three key themes, but I want to just get to my main point for a few minutes. And it's around this word shame. And um, so, get ready. <laughs> around the word shame. It would be very easy for us to gloss over verse 16. Some of you may already have had a reaction to this question. Go and bring your husband and come back. You may have reacted to this question. In fact, the woman reacts to it. In verse 17, she says, I have no husband. It's almost like she's saying, anyway, 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 moving on, let's talk about this bucket that you haven't got on this everlasting water. I want that. I don't want to talk about my checkered past. I don't want to talk about the fact that I've had uh, a couple of husbands and I'm living with someone. I don't want to talk about any of that. But Jesus keeps on at this particular subject. And it'll be very easy to gloss over this, wouldn't it? But we would miss something very important. You see, her marital status, her history in the first century would have been a cause of great public shame to her. Hinted at the fact that she is alone at the well. She's come to the well on her own, not with the other women from her village and her town, on her own. And you can only assume that this is so that she doesn't have to answer or be talked about or gossiped about. In many cultures, shame often leads to being publicly ostracized. In some places, Shame leads to punishment or even death. And we rightly pray for Afghanistan, knowing that militant Islam um, is a dangerous thing. And already they're knocking door to door to find anyone that has broken what they consider to be right and wrong. Shame in many cultures leads to being ostracized or punished, or perhaps in some severe cases, even death. And it was no different in the first century. So what do you do then in that culture when you suffer shame? You hide you avoid, you pretend it doesn't exist, 
You gloss over your history because it's too sad and too um, controversial. You stay at the well all on your own. I wonder this morning how many of us are carrying a very large burden of shame. I wonder how many of us if, uh, worry that if people really knew us, they wouldn't like us. I wonder how many of us, even at home, are sitting there thinking, if you knew the things I watched on my computer, the things I watch on my phone when no one's in the same room, you would hate me. Maybe you feel shame over a love of money. Maybe you think, if you just knew how I fiddled my taxes last year, you would despise me. And so I'm going to hide that from you. I'm not going to tell anyone about that. Maybe in the past there's been marital uh, affairs or at least thinking about doing that sort of thing. Maybe you feel shame about that. Maybe you've got an unhealthy relationship with drink or drugs and you hate it. Maybe you've harmed yourself or someone else. I wonder how many of us in this room and watching at home suffer with such a huge amount of shame that we, like this woman, keep out the way, keep our head down and don't tell a soul. Because if you really knew me, if you really knew me, you would hate me. The problem with that is that it's not the life Jesus wants for you or me. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls, says that he's come to give his life in all its fullness. Not some of its fullness, not occasional fullness, not pretend fullness, but all of its fullness. We are supposed to be people who are free from our sin, free from our mistakes, free from our shame. And yet the world says, just hide it, don't tell a soul. Have a good social media um, front that looks wonderful, like you're this really together human being. Only post good photos. Only post happy photos. Only post photos where you've got it all together. And let's do this. We can do this. But you know deep down you can't. And the shame wins by the second. It's a half-life when you hide with your shame and not the life God intends. I suspect everyone would have whispered about this woman as she walked down the road, pointed, avoided her, gossiped about her. And isn't that what we all secretly fear? That if you really knew me, you would whisper and you would avoid me. So what on earth is Jesus doing? Asking her about her husband's and her love life. Why does he keep bringing it up? Won't this question make her feel bad? The answer is yes, it will. And it will do for a while. But what Jesus wants is all of her including her shame. And what I love is that Jesus does four things to this woman. The first is he waits for her. He is not at this world by accident. This is by sovereign design. He knew she was coming to get water and he waited for her because he wanted this one woman to know that her shame no longer had to define her. He waited for her. Then he spoke to her. For the first time, probably in a long time, someone actually spoke to her, not in judgment and condemnation, but love and life. He then includes her. He gives her a job to do. Get me some water. He includes her in his mission. And then he offers her everlasting life. And if you were to read verse 28 to 29, she sprints home and she speaks to her town rather than them ignoring her. She says, come and see the one who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I wonder... Those of you suffering heavily with shame, if you realize that God has been waiting for you your whole life, if you realize that God has been speaking to you, you just need to listen, that God wants to include you in his kingdom building, not exclude you or ostracize you or punish you, he wants to forgive you, and he has a job for you in his kingdom. 
And he wants to offer you life in all its fullness, no matter what you've done or has been done to you. So two things to finish. The first is that we need to be honest about our shame as Christians or non-Christians. We need to be people that are prepared firstly to speak to God openly. It's so easy when you pray to say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Anyway, let tomorrow I go well at work and let me get a holiday and everything else. Uh, let me be better looking and all these things. And I want to help me to get down to the gym. And, but gloss over it. I encourage you to be people that say, Lord, forgive me for looking at pornography on my phone. Or forgive me for getting drunk the other day. Forgive me, Lord, for swearing. Forgive me, Lord, for that time I lied. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. Just say it out loud because guess what? He knows already. But there's something about saying it to God that I think allows the barriers to come down for him to work in your life. The second thing we need to think about doing is thinking, who do we trust? Who do we trust within this church community, who are Christians primarily, that we can be open about our shame with? Is there someone that you need just to tell? Because there's something about accountability. There's something about going the extra mile with someone that makes the shame easier to lift. God can do it on his own, of course, but God works in community, not isolation. And so I encourage us to think, who is it that I trust? Don't worry about what they'll think. They won't think anything, I promise you. But if you trust them, open up to them. Shame is not designed to be carried and certainly not carried alone. The second thing we must do is those of us that may be spoken to need to be like Jesus Christ. We must listen without prejudice, speak without judgment, and love with grace. If someone shares something that you think, that's bad, we must be unshockable to their face, never going, or, do you know that's a sin? Because they already do. (laughs) Unshockable, speaking the truth in love, walking with them, praying with them until the shame drips away. Let's pray for a few moments. Let's just shut our eyes for a second and you may want to put your hands out or just stay as you are. And just in the silence, just think about what's been said this morning. Maybe you feel like the woman at the well. Maybe you feel like someone who's been ostracized or maybe that's what you fear the most. Is there something that just lurks in the corner of your life, that sense of shame and you're so disappointed in yourself when you were younger, you thought you were going to be brilliant and now you feel like you're the worst? How is that affecting your relationships? How is that affecting your relationship with God, your husband or wife, your children, your friends? Is it making you bitter? Is it making you standoffish? Do you keep everyone at arm's length? Just think for a second with eyes closed. Just be honest with God. Speak to him about what your shame is this morning, just quietly in your hearts. Name it. Just as you stand there with eyes closed, thinking of what part of that story resonated with you, just think of Jesus, God the Son, fully God, fully man, talking to you, knowing exactly all that you've done or what's been done to you. Just think of that moment. Think of the last time someone spoke about that thing that you struggle with but loved you well at the same time. He does. He loves you so well. 
He offers you everlasting life. He offers you freedom. I believe God wants to bring healing this morning in people's lives, in this room watching from home. So I'm going to pray. I want you just to let God move in your heart. Father God, I want to pray for every single one of us, Lord, at home or in this building. Father, you know the things that we've done. You know the shame that we carry. You know the things we struggle with, the addictions that we cannot break. Lord, you know that we often find ourselves alone in this, wondering how on earth we're going to get it right and be happy again. We felt innocent once, Lord, but now we just feel broken and dirty and ashamed. And Lord, sometimes we try to style it out, as they say, by owning our scars, but Lord, actually, we don't want those scars at all. We don't want these things to define us. So Lord God, I ask simply that you would bring healing this morning. Holy Spirit, work on your people in this building at home, wherever. Lord, please heal the brokenness in people's lives. Wipe away the stains of sin and mistakes. And Lord, I pray that we will be as white as snow. Father, we pray for your blessing on every single person in this room and watching at home. We ask, Lord, that you would move in our lives. That, Lord, you would show us the better way. Show us, Lord, that you love us. Show us that forgiveness is not limited. It's not occasional. It's unlimited. It's all the time. And whatever we do, we can always come to you and say sorry, and you will always forgive. I pray healing in the name of Jesus. I pray bless you in the name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would restore us in the name of Jesus. Amen.